In this latest series of podcasts for C-Centric, Chief Executive Wayne Bruce talks to healthcare executives and senior management about the key issues and career paths in the healthcare sector today. Next is Professor James Angus, the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences for the University of Melbourne. Jim, thanks very much for your time today. Could I start by asking you to uh, perhaps tell us briefly about your career path, where it's led to your current role, and as part of that, could you outline the most interesting job you've ever had? Mm. Yeah, thanks, Wayne, and thanks for the opportunity to answer some of these very interesting questions. Um, I started life as a scientist at Sydney University, doing a BSc degree, uh, thinking I always wanted to do research. Uh, I could have got into medical school, I had a, a maximum pass at uh, the Leaving Certificate, but research was my goal, and I thought I was going to be a biochemist. Uh, by the time I finished second year, that was not what I wanted to do. I thought cleaning test tubes seven times over was not appropriate. So I looked in the handbook, and there was this subject pharmacology. So I completed uh, the BSc with a major in pharmacology, went on and did honours, and then enrolled in a PhD at the University of Sydney with a supervisor being a cardiologist from Macquarie Street, David Richmond. And that opened my eyes to the wonderful relationship between basic science and clinical medicine, particularly cardiovascular pharmacology. Uh, David gave up a day of his uh, busy week to be in my laboratory. I had worked with a guy, Tony Goodman, who developed an analogue myocardial contractility computer. So I was all set for my PhD to measure myocardial contractility in the uh, awake human in the cath lab and this was pioneering stuff for Australia and possibly only one or two centres in the world was uh, going along this path. So I had a dream run and it was the mentors I had and the opportunities to work closely with clinicians. Uh, I then was offered a job in uh, Sandos in Switzerland uh, to head up pharmacology as a young postdoc but instead of that Paul Corner who was the director of cardiology at the Holstrom Institute of Cardiology at uh, Royal Prince Alfred Hospital said he wanted to see me. And basically he said, what did you want to do in 10 years' time? I finished up by saying that I guess I want to do research. Where do you want to do it? And I said, probably in Australia. He said, right, come and work for me. So we didn't go to, to Sandos. I was just been married and I worked as the first scientist in Paul Corner's research lab in hypertension. Within 18 months he was moving to take up the directorship of the Baker Medical Research Institute in Melbourne and he asked me to go with him. Uh, then I won a prestigious C.J. Martin Fellowship to work overseas and I chose to work with a man, James Black, who had discovered propranolol and cimetidine and uh, he really was the leader in the world in analytical pharmacology. He at first said don't come because we don't do um, intact animal cardiovascular research but I said I know that, I want to learn something different and that was medicinal chemistry. And so he said come along and I was the uh, second only international student ever to work with James Black. It was a fortunate choice because um, after I left him in 1984 he was awarded the Nobel Prize. So that really set my career up. The world was my oyster having worked with James Black. I was offered a wonderful job uh, to work with Merck and with um, uh, other drug companies, Genentech, another one, in, in uh, San Francisco. But my wife and I and our uh, small children decided we'd come back to Melbourne. So I came back to the Baker Institute, headed up the uh, cardiovascular laboratory, and again under the leadership of Paul Corner, we developed a wonderful uh, small pharmacology research team. 
closely uh, interacting with the, um, the team across in the hospital, in the cardiologists, uh, Arch Broughton and Gary Jennings and others. Uh, so I went up the totem pole, became the deputy director of the institute and a professor at Monash. Uh, did a lot of work for the NHMRC as you do as a young fellow. And then um, Paul Corner retired. The institute appointed um, uh, uh, John Funder as the new director. I worked there uh, under him as a deputy director for two years and then was offered the chair of pharmacology here at Melbourne. So you might say that um, I'd already had a wonderful research career with working in a, a great institution under a wonderful director. So what was left for Jay Angus? And with the opportunity coming to Melbourne was that David Pennington, who was the Vice-Chancellor of the day, said that he wanted to extend the medical school to build new facilities for pharmacology. Uh, I accepted that and uh, put two floors on here for 20 million and created what I believe is arguably the best cardiovascular facility and pharmacology department in the world. Uh, to thank the university, I was invited to be a, um, a board officer for the academic board. And that's a, you have three years of, uh, two years of each, um, being the deputy, then the vice, and then the president of the academic board. And that opened my eyes to the richness of this extraordinary institution. And so um, 2000, 2001, I was president. Uh, Alan Gilbert was the vice chancellor. Sally Walker was part-time vice chancellor. But that showed me a much broader uh, palette, if you like, of leadership, both in quality, in teaching and research, which basically I, I could handle the research angle, but to actually see the teaching and the knowledge transfer and other things we do in a university was a, was a great um, leadership opportunity. I then um, finished that term and uh, I was invited to be the deputy dean. Richard Larkins was the dean. And soon after I came back to the faculty in that role, uh, Richard was appointed Vice-Chancellor at Monash. And so uh, Alan Gilbert set in place a process to appoint a new dean. And I've been dean since 2003. The, uh, the faculty is huge. It's a $450 million enterprise. It's as large as some of the uh, GO8 universities. My faculty itself is as large as the University of Adelaide. Uh, it's very complex. Uh, we've completely restructured in the last 12 months. I spent a lot of my time, probably at least half, working with our stakeholders, with Medical Research Institute directors, with their boards, with hospitals, uh, government, both federal and state. So it's an absorbing, complex, exciting uh, role. I don't think you can be trained for it. I think you have to have um, a, a very... Um, sort of a fair-minded approach to everybody and seek advice and make a decision. Mm. So um, has it been um, an interesting job? I wouldn't uh, swap it for anything, but I think at these very high-level positions, you can't do it for more than two terms. And i am just entered my seventh year out of, out of a 10-year term. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Jim, uh, where do you see the medical research sector heading over the next five or ten years, given the you know, extensive history you've had within it? Mm. Yeah, it's um, this. If I was a young scientist starting off today, there is the most exciting opportunities I think in molecular science that we've ever had, of course. But uh, it's both at the molecular level, uh, with all the wonderful. Uh, uh, opportunities with new technologies, with the genome, with the 
the control of uh, genes and the uh, an RNA now and this sort of junk RNA and DNA that we thought was around has certainly got very important roles to play. So I think that's very exciting. But let's not forget the systems biology, that we have to put this knowledge back into an integrated system. And as James Black rightly said, whatever you discover at the molecular level has to come back into the integrated body, which at the higher level of organisation will trump the information below, if you can use that analogy from the card game. And I think that's where pharmacology and science comes together. We love it as scientists to be able to think about A plus B equals C, the molecular level. But if we don't understand systems biology, then we will not be able to translate this science, wonderful science and opportunities, into true translation to healthcare. And that, for me today, is that we must do both. It's not one or the other. We've got to put our limited resources, keeping the basic science driving, but also getting the integrated systems and, of course, the translation and then into policy and how we can effectively use and test through you know, evidence-based medicine, very important clinical trial work. And that leadership has to be with the clinical scientists, working closely day by day with the base scientists. Both have to work together and know each other's business. And that to me is the greatest risk we have at the moment, if we turn to a risk for a moment, that have we actually got enough resource to get the clinical researchers working, if you like, with uh, protected time, apart from their busy schedules of saving lives and the clinical medicine, can they actually deliver this clinical research? That to me is a real pressure point at the moment in funding of research in this country. Mm. And do you think that's one that's easily solved? Uh, We have to make politicians and the grant bodies aware of this gap. Uh, So it's communication and getting them to understand this is not, it should not be political, this is about the future of healthcare. And we have to be a lot smarter. We bring in new devices, bring in new drugs, unless we properly find their niche, it's going to waste resources. But, you know, so who's going to pay for those clinical trials? Who's going to be the engine room to, de- to, to uh, design the trials and analyse them? We need a real rich mix of, of skills to do so. And I guess, you know, with um, uh, institutions like Bio21, which I know the university is involved mm. with, and it's a key thing the Victorian government's been focusing on, I mean, the whole biomedical sector is a potentially a huge industry mm. uh, of the future for Australia, mm. given our sort of competitive advantages in that area. Mm. I mean, do you, do you have a view on how we capitalise on that as a country? Well, I mean, we, there's no doubt we punch above our weight. The announcement on Monday night of Elizabeth Blackburn winning the Nobel Prize, this is an, a, a wonderful uh, focus now on, on the, sci- the science method or the science process. It starts, of course, with a very good um, uh, solid education, and that desire, that spark that can be turned into a bushfire, as she had from chemistry back in Launceston. I mean, this is, you don't, where's that spark in the schools? Where does it start in the kindergarten? The inquiry, we've got to build, it's at all levels. It's not, you can't wait until they're at university. It's got to start, as it did for me, like it did for Elizabeth, back in the, in the garden shed at home where I used to fill up balloons with hydrogen gas. I did all sorts of things. Pulled the clocks apart. This is what doing science is about. And we've got to make sure that uh, we have the teachers who can actually stimulate the children right through school. Mm-hmm. And where do you see, or what do you see as the key issues affecting healthcare at present? Oh, I think it is the, uh, the limit of resources. Well, there is a finite. We have to make choices. And unless we've got the evidence to make those choices, we are going to waste resources. 
the other one, of course, is in preventative medicine. I think with the Health and Hospital Reform Commission report that's out, uh, this increasing resource into staying well and taking the individual taking responsibility for it are key issues. And if we don't get that out and everybody looking for someone else to prop them up when they are ill, then we are not going to get the appropriate outcomes we're looking for. We have a fabulous health system in this country. There's no doubt about that. And we might want to maintain it and actually make it even better. Mm. It's probably one or two in the world. Mm. And the University of Melbourne has recently, and the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry, Health Sciences, has recently changed from undergraduate to a postgraduate mm. model for its medical degrees. What do you see is the benefit of doing this? Mm. Um, well, over the, the last uh, 10 years or so, we've had a, a dual uh, degree pathway where both school leavers and graduates could take an MBBS degree. So we were running them in parallel. In fact, they were joining in lectures and in classes together, the, the two cohorts, but for the one degree and examined under the same conditions. The, the students coming out of school also had one year of research called the Advanced Medical Science Year and gave them all a compulsory taste of doing either basic or clinical research. And we thought that was uh, very valuable for them for the particular medical graduate that we want to produce. We now feel that we're moving to another stage and that, as you rightly say, is graduate only entry into medicine. But it's not going to be as it was before. It's going to rely on the first degree being in cognate science discipline. So you need some biochemistry, some anatomy, some physiology, etc. In your first science degree, some core subjects, and then you'd, you'd be selected, uh, if you're a strong student, of course, and with the right attributes, into a graduate medical degree, four years. And at this university, we will be defining that as an MD, like they do in the, the Doctor of Medicine, like they do in the US and, and other countries. Uh, but that means it's being taught at the master level. It is not to be confused with a PhD, of course. It is a master's level medical degree, first entry medical degree. Now, we believe then that the students, A, will be more mature when they enter medicine as a graduate, but B, will have the foundation of a strong science degree to build into their clinical medicine. Uh, we believe that if they don't have the wherewithal with basic science, they will struggle or, if you like, not apply the new science as it's developed from a strong base. And we need that, we believe, at Melbourne to fulfil the type of attribute. And the young doctor we want to graduate ready for their internship. The competition for healthcare workforce is it's global now and it's going to become more global. Yep. How do you think we position ourselves as a country to you know, compete effectively in that mm. area? Are there things mm. we should be doing that we're not doing mm. now, for example? Mm, that's a good uh, set of questions there. Um, it is the environment that is very attractive in Australia, both for the living conditions, the, the quality of life we have. It is wonderful. Um, but it doesn't suit everybody, and of course we've got a lot of our population is outside the cities. When we think of the outer metro and rural and regional and remote, you can't expect every top-line specialist to be available uh, you know, for, a, for an appointment next week. So what can we do about that? And we have to fit that need uh, or make use of our resources in Australia to meet that need. Now you can move people around by helicopter or light plane, that's an issue. You can bring the doctors uh, to do into an area for a particular set of cataracts or whatever you might do. 
So there's lots of ways you can set this up. Another way is to get our young doctors, if you like, spending some time before they, if you like, move into the private sector in a rural or remote region. I think it would be very good for medicine to do so. So there's lots of ways the government will need to continue to change the way our workforce is distributed, but, and depending upon their career path and time, you might use to, need to use different incentives. If you're in Malaysia, I understand that if you're trained in the public system as a hospital, as a, as a doctor, you have to spend up to 10 years in the public sector before you can be a private, uh, move into the private system. So there's other ways that countries use to distribute their workforce. Um, what competencies do you think that the academic leaders of today need to be successful? Yes, um, the academic leaders is another workforce shortage. I mean, as you know, if you read the papers, that the academics are huge, you know, the average age is more than 50. Now, well, that is not what it used to be. So, where is the career path to attract academics? And clinical academics, medical academics, to run the medical schools is in really short supply. As we've had to expand new medical schools, one of the real um, uh, gates to this, barriers, has been where do you find a competent academic workforce to actually? Um, populate these new medical schools. And so it is even in the hospitals. Who's going to do the teaching and the training? Um, so I think you've got to A, give them a reasonable uh, remuneration, B, look at the quality of the workload. So and there's nothing more satisfying than teaching, seeing those light bulbs turn on and actually feel as a teacher you've made a difference. And unless you've experienced it, you can't know how powerful that is. So there is that draw card. But once you've done it, uh, you know, it's amazing how it gets in your blood. It's like research. Once you've made a discovery, it's in your blood. And so what we want to do at Melbourne is to ensure that every one of our medical graduates has been taught how to teach. And then we would ask them when they move into the internship and being a registrar, they will be able to have some protected time for research and teaching, and it's remunerated. So they don't, if you like, at the present time, most of it's done pro bono in their own time. That pressure's on quality sometimes. It means that they do it as an afterthought, leaving the student stranded on occasions. We can't have that. We must look at the quality and protect the, these, uh, these uh, uh, academic teachers with appropriate remunerated time, not at the specialist level, but at a, at a reasonable level so that they can actually have time to teach. Mm. Um, and if you were mentoring an aspiring academic or, or clinician, James, I mean, what would be your advice to them about how to chart their career? Um, I think it's all about the environment, choosing your mentor and choosing the lab or the environment. It is critical. So do your homework, ask some questions, go and meet the current PhD students or students who have been through a particular branch and see how they got on. And then you'll find out very quickly what works and what doesn't work. It is a bit of a lottery, like choosing your research topic is a bit of a lottery. But um, I, I've always uh, found that if I have two or three projects on the go, they rise and fall in, and have their own momentum at different times as the science comes and goes. And uh, and keep going. Don't, don't um, you know, just what I've always done is, is work hard and play hard and I think you've got to keep yourself very fit if you're going to really get into this high level 24-7 um, but it's, it's a wonderful career mm. I mean being a scientist teacher 
leader now in, in the medical school, I mean, I couldn't ask for anything better. That's a, a great note to close the, uh, the interview. Thanks for your time. Too. Yeah, thanks very much, mate.